This is Zach Braziller of the New York Post, and you're listening to Left Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. He is a sports writer for the Providence Journal covering the Red Sox and the University of Rhode Island basketball team and much more. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Bill Koch. Bill, how are you tonight? Tom, I'm good. I, I have quite the introduction to live up to. Uh, you, know, you set the bar very high. I appreciate that. Don't don't feel like you got spoiled. Tom does that for everybody. It's a little bit okay, over the good, top. Good, good. Only That's you, Bill. Only you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bill. Th- thanks again for joining the show. Much appreciated. No, my pleasure, guys. Happy to be with you. Okay, so I, I think it would be an understatement to say it's been a crazy start to the year. Schedules are constantly getting shuffled. Games are canceled. New matchups are being added at the last minute. Can you take a moment and describe the chaos of it all, especially from a venue like Bubbleville at Mohican Sun, where you just came from? Really cool concept at Bubbleville. Uh, the players and, and the staffs are sequestered. They feel safe. They feel comfortable. Uh, if you've never been to Mohegan Sun, it, it's, it's a big campus, big hotel. Um, casino is, is sprawling. It's a nice arena. Um, you know, so you're able to keep people away from each other a little bit. Um, you know, I think you or I stay there being five days or six days. It, it wasn't like the NBA where you're there for weeks and months on end and the walls sort of start to close in a little bit. It, it was probably the perfect length. It was like going to a conference tournament and playing all the way into the finals. Um, you know, I just think you're looking at this season and, and college basketball is no different than society at large. You know, there's nothing conventional. There's nothing normal. People are just going to have to adjust as we go. Um, and, and I think a lot of people look at coaches and they think, well, I'd love to have that job and make all that money and, you know, just coach a game and live in a sweatsuit full time. And, and I think you're seeing this year why these guys make the money that they do, uh, you know, just dealing with players and dealing with families who are struggling uh, and trying to get their team on the floor as often as possible. Well, it almost seems like the Rams had a reverse situation of most teams uh, out there right now. You know, most teams are losing games. They're taking pauses. But with Baylor's head coach Scott Drew testing positive, it caused this ripple effect that made Baylor lose their spot at the Sun. And URI slid in. They were initially scheduled to play Stephen F. Austin and Townsend, but they ended up being upgraded, if you will, to ASU and Boston College. So how quickly did that go down once Baylor pulled out? And was there consideration by Coach Cox just to stick with the original matchups? Uh, it was ours, Tom. 
it, it wasn't much longer than that. Uh, you know, I know URI benefits from proximity. They're about a 45 minute bus ride from Mohegan Sun. Uh, they were already planning to go in the first place. And, and as it turned out, Stephen F. Austin had a positive test uh, about 18 hours before their first game was supposed to tip on Wednesday. So they ended up going home. Uh, I know Rhode Island was looking to upgrade their non-conference schedule. Uh, they're trying to get to the NCAA tournament this year. And, you know, not having Providence on the schedule this year with the Friars, uh, you know, choosing not to schedule them home and home, that loses a quadrant one game. Uh, you know, so I know that they were looking for quality non-conference opponents. And you know, when it was proposed to them that they could play Arizona State, uh, you know, and potentially the Boston College or Villanova, it's exactly the kind of opportunity that they were looking for. Uh, you know, I also think that it's a good reward for the fact that they've been disciplined. You know, it, it's very difficult to avoid positive tests in, in this environment. Uh, you know, the virus is, is so prevalent uh, on campuses and, and in cities and, and in places where we are. Uh, and I know that, that they've taken it real seriously and, and tried to avoid it and, and have done so, uh, you know, so far. Um, so I think it was a, a good thing and, and a good spot for them. Uh, you know, obviously they would have liked to have won one of the two games, but, you know, it's definitely a, a good spot for them and something that they were looking for. All right. So let's talk a little basketball. I want to break down Rhode Island's start in two segments. Let's begin with those two games against ASU and BC. So they obviously took two losses, 94-89 to Arizona State in the opener, and then they came back with a 69-64 setback to Boston College. In that first game, Fats Russell had significant foul trouble with four alone in the first half, yet Rhode Island rallied back from a seven-point deficit at half to get within one late before Marcus Bagley made all three free throws with about a minute eight to play. How much of a confidence builder was that for the group to be able to kind of play with the number 18 team in the country with little prep time and their best player limited? It was two very different feelings, Michael. Uh, you know, I look at the, the Arizona State game, a, a team that has more talent than you, uh, is more skilled than you. They have players who you can't recruit. Um, you know, whether it's Josh Christopher, who's a five-star freshman who's going to play in the NBA, he's super. Uh, Marcus Bagley, who you wouldn't be able to get, uh, I'm sure. You're playing against Remy Martin, who's an All-American. You're down 16 in the first half and, and you know, sort of getting run over by their skill and their pace. And you know, it's a game that they could have gone, you know, could have gotten out of control. Uh, you know, but Rhode Island dug in despite the foul trouble, despite the, dispar uh, the disparity in free throws. And you know, they made it a contest in the second half. Antoine Walker got really hot, scored 14 straight points in, in one stretch. Uh, Rhode Island took the lead. Um, you know, midway through the second half. And, and then Fats Russell fouls out with six minutes left. And, and really that's the end of the game. You get outscored 12-5 the rest of the way. You, you just, you need that guy on the floor to try and finish it out against a team who's better than you, uh, you know, who's ranked in the top 20. Um, the next night against Boston College was a different feeling because I'm not necessarily going to say that you have more talent than them man for man, but it's a team that you get into a toughness contest with, you get the game played at your pace. It's slow. It's defensive. It's grinding. That's generally a game that Rhode Island has won, whether it be under Dan Hurley or under David Cox. Um, and it was just, it wasn't a very sharp performance. It, it didn't have a lot of pep to it, a lot of zip to it. So you would look at those two games and, and you would say they felt good after Arizona state, they had something to build on. And they felt like they needed to go back to the drawing board after Boston College and, and sort of regroup there. 
Well, the Rams did bounce back with two nice wins. URI ends up beating South Florida 84-68. Four players finished in double figures. Ten players had double-digit minutes. And they also beat the Dons of San Francisco, who recently just beat Virginia. It was Fats Russell led the way with 21 points. If there was something you could take away from these four games in terms of team's identity, what would it be, Bill? It's similar to who they've been in the past. It's going to be defense first. They're, they're going to really work hard at that end of the floor. They're going to make it difficult for you on the perimeter. They have a legitimate leader in Fats Russell who, you know, when it's all said and done, is going to be one of the best players to play at Rhode Island in the last 15, 20 years. And that's some really good company considering a couple of the teams that they've had. Uh, they have a lot more depth this year, uh, you know, but because it's so many new players, you're not necessarily cer certain how it's going to mesh. Um, we've seen through the first four games that they can defend. They have more size up front. Uh, they have more options in the paint. Uh, they've made some significant additions there. So I, I feel like this team's upside compared to maybe last year or, or the year before, or even Dan Hurley's last season, because of the size up front, that gives them a different dimension. You're able to match up with teams in the Power Five and in the Big East. It, it's much more difficult to recruit those guys. Uh, you know, and so maybe you, you take a couple on transfer. Uh, maybe you try to develop another one. Uh, you know, DJ Johnson, who's a red shirt last year, who's a six, eight guy who plays on the wing. Um, you're able to match up a little more. You're a little more representative physically, I, I guess you could say. And, and so when you step on the floor, you pass the uniform test. You might be able to play an up game against a team who's a little better than you. Um, and, and you might have a few more answers. Uh, but I think they're going to be pretty close to what they've always been, which is you know, defense first work hard, be disciplined, and try to ride good guard play to wins. All right. So the whole purpose of these types of podcasts is to kind of go behind the scenes, take a closer look at the roster so the Seton Hall fan base can get an understanding of who we're up against. So let, let's do that. Let's take a look at URI on paper. Last year, they're coming off of a 21-9 and campaign. Currently, they're picked to finish sixth in the A-10. Uh, but after losing three of their top four scorers to graduation or transfer, they're losing a lot of firepower. That they, uh, they've lost almost forty nine percent of the team scoring from last year's you know total output. But they have their unquestioned leader back that you've already mentioned in Fats Russell, who briefly flirted with the NBA draft. How important was that decision for the program in order to maintain some level of stability? Uh, it's everything. Without him, it's a complete rebuild. Uh, you know, he's the type of guy, senior guard, um, you know, someone who can do a little bit of everything, whether it's score it, shoot it, makes his free throws down the stretch. Uh, he's going to set the program record for steals all time. Uh, you know, he was an A-10 all-defensive player at the end of last year. Um, you know, just a catalyst, a, a fire starter, a guy who sparks your team. Um, you know, you go forward from there. And, and it all really trickles from him. If he's playing his role, everyone else is allowed to sort of step in as the supporting cast. And they fit that way, naturally. If you lose Fats for any period of time, it would have been like Seton Hall losing Miles Powell last year. Now, Fats isn't necessarily Miles Powell. I don't know if he's going to play in the NBA. He's not going to score 2,300 points or whatever it was that, that Miles Powell ended up with at Seton Hall. But he is their version of that. If, if you lose that guy, you're asking five to 10% more from everybody else. You're asking them to get out of their comfort level and the team doesn't work. The chemistry doesn't work that way. So he is that important. Him coming back sort of allowed them to set up the rest of the roster, set up the way that they want to play. 
Um, he's the guy, number one on the scouting report every night, the guy that you need to identify and plan for. All right, so let's talk some more about Fats. As you've already mentioned, last year, uh, A-10 all-defensive team, but he was also A-10 first team overall. Uh, coming back so far in the first four games, he's averaged 17.8 points per game, 32 minutes, probably would have been higher without the foul trouble in game one. But his his numbers are down a little bit. 36.8% field goal shooting, 21% from three, five of 24. His free throw shooting still there. He's actually upped his game to get there seven attempts per game, uh, highlighted by 11 for 11 versus San Francisco uh, in the last time out, still averaging four assists per game. And yes, he is projected A-10 all preseason first team. I know it's a small sample size, but some of those uh, shooting efficiency numbers, as I mentioned, are slightly down compared to where they were last year already. You know, is Russell pressing a little bit, considering that, you know, he needs to lead the team and all the focus is on him offensively? He had to do that last year. I, I think his shot selection so far through four games hasn't been as good. Um, you know, a lot of step back threes, uh, a lot of threes where he's off the dribble, um, you know, takes that, that one step back to the left and, and sort of shoots it off the dribble. Um, not many toes to the line threes, which I, I think is when you're more in rhythm, you step into your shot, you're coming forward, whether it's on the break or, you know, it's an inside to outside pass and you catch it right in the pocket, step up to the line and make your shot. Um, you know, a lot of this is, is off him bringing the ball up or the shot clock running down and, and you're not necessarily in a great rhythm yet uh, in terms of shooting the ball. It is important that he gets to the foul line. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, 11 for 11 against San Francisco. When he shoots five free throws, which he's done now 40 times in his career, they're 32 and eight. Um, that means that he is attacking, he's getting to the rim, he's putting the defense on their heels. Uh, you know, he's also creating passing lanes when he does that. Uh, you know, he's a willing passer, he's a low turnover guy, he can find bigs for layups inside or kick it out. Um, but So for right now, I, I think you know, they're gonna take the next couple of days, they'll break down some film for him. They'll probably show him that maybe you, know, you don't want to shoot it from 23 or 24 feet off the dribble. You might want to kick it into the post or work it around the perimeter a little bit and then maybe catch it in rhythm and try to find your shot that way. Well, Fats Russell isn't the only piece on this team, but I'm thinking hometown fans will be hard-pressed to recognize the faces. So there's five transfers on the team, Malik Martin, Jeremy Shepard, the Mitchell twins, and Jalen Carey, along with four freshmen that have joined the team. But one name in particular that Seton Hall fans should be familiar with, and that's Jalen Carey, a point guard who transferred from Syracuse. He was originally a top 53 rated rivals guy from the 2018 class. He played basketball in New Jersey in high school for Immaculate Conception, and he was offered by Seton Hall. Now, sometimes a player just needs to change the scenery to be successful, and he's currently averaging about 10 points over the first four games. But does it concern you that he's only got one assist to this point? He's not necessarily in rhythm yet. I, I think they're playing him as a third guard, and he's probably used to playing in a two-guard offense. Uh, I mean, you go to Syracuse and you're playing three traditional bigs across the front generally, uh, you know, or you're playing a, a stretch small forward, a six, eight guy who could go to the NBA, you know, someone like Hughes who was drafted the other night, you know, it was a six, 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 seven guy who's going to play the three. Um, you got Carey playing the three next to Russell and, and Jeremy Shepard. So it's probably new for him. They brought him off the bench the last two games and, and he seemed a lot more comfortable. Uh, I think the best thing for him to do right now would be to find his offense through his defense. 
work hard at that end of the floor. You could see him in open spaces off the dribble when he's on the break. He's a natural. He does some things athletically that some of their other guys can't do, uh, you know, in terms of his balance, in terms of getting to the rim, his finishing, um, you know, and his length at 6'2", 6'3", with long arms. He can do some things that, that Russell and Shepard just can't do physically. Um, you know, he has so much ability for free. That's what makes you a top 50, 60 recruit. You, you can see that sort of package there, that skill set there. Um, you know, but he hasn't played a lot of basketball the last couple of years. He played two games last year, had thumb surgery. He was fixing, they fixed a ligament, I think, in his shooting hand, his right hand. Um, you know, so hasn't really been out there very much, but I, I think he's somebody who he gives them a body that they don't necessarily re successfully recruit that often, that sort of top 60-ish, four-star-ish uh, guard who has that sort of athletic ability. Well, speaking of bodies that Rhode Island typically doesn't recruit, I want to talk about the Mitchell Twins for a moment next. So you got Makai and you got Mikhail. Makai was clearly the higher-rated player out of, out of high school, a top 100 prospect in the 2019 recruiting class. Both kind of came as a package deal to Maryland, uh, but ultimately decided to transfer out of that program towards the beginning of the season last year. They were granted immediate eligibility by the NCAA, therefore allowing them to play on this year's roster. But getting to URI wasn't without a little bit of controversy. Maria Mitchell, their mother, called out Mark Turgeon in the media and basically said that, you know, her boys were railroaded in terms of PT. So my question to you, Bill, is how has the transition been so far? And do the previous comments from mom kind of raise the bar in terms of performance in order to validate her claims. Oh boy, I mean, this is where coaches earn their money, right? Um, <laughs> you, you, you're not you're not just recruiting the player; you're you're recruiting the player's family, you're recruiting the player's high school coach, the player's grassroots coach. Um, you know, this is the side of the game that that fans don't necessarily see that often. Um, you know, and and Maria Mitchell isn't the first parent to be vocal on social media. She won't be the last either. Um, you know, for me because we're in this age of COVID-19 and we're doing this podcast over Zoom, and this is really the only way that we've been able to talk to players. Um, I don't know Makai and, and Mikel that well. Uh, you know, I haven't necessarily dealt with either one of them. I didn't cover them in, in high school and prep school uh, on the grassroots circuit. What I would say is this, they played for DC Premier, which your eyes coach David Cox knows very well. Uh, he's, he's gotten several players out of that program, including Jermaine Harris, who, who's another forward on this team who was a top 100 recruit and he was a junior. Um, you know, it, it certainly is a risk. It's always a risk when you take a transfer. It, it's definitely a risk when you take two transfers as a package deal, whether they're twin brothers or not, um, you know, who might have had some issues at their previous school, uh, you know, who certainly were, you know, mentioned in, in some disciplinary circles at Maryland. Uh, you know, it, uh, apparently, you know, there was a report, I think, by the Testudo Times that said that they were going to be suspended uh, if they didn't leave Maryland. Um, you know, I don't necessarily know if that's true or not. Um, you know, and, and I know that just from their time at Rhode Island, there haven't been any issues with them off the floor. Um, you know, they've, they've both played uh, through the first four games and, and played reasonably well. Um, you know, and, and, and there hasn't really been anything leaking out of the program in terms of a lack of character there, a lack of commitment there. So I'm content to judge the players just on base of who they are and how they act. Um, you know, if, if people are going to judge me based on my parents or my brother or anybody else, I could be in for some problems, uh, you know, because my brother's a bit of a wild card every once in a while. Uh, yeah, I love him. But uh, I mean, you know, if you're going to recruit me based on, on him, 
uh, who knows what's going to happen. And I'm sure that he would say the same thing about me. Um, <laughs> but when you're at a place like Rhode Island, which is a mid-major, and you have a shot at two four-star big guys, and the head coach has enough confidence to bring them into his culture, and he thinks that he knows enough about their background that he can sort of get them to conform and play the way he wants them to, it's not an opportunity that they get very often to get guys with those physical measurables. And, and so I think it's a balancing act. You sort of weigh how much is this going to help us? How much could this potentially hurt us? And I think they ultimately settle on the side of let's give them a fresh start. Let's see what happens in our culture, in our program. Um, you know, let's speak to people who know them well, who I also know well, if you're David Cox, and let's just move forward from there. Well, let's briefly talk about on-the-court performance for a second then relative to the Mitchell brothers. First couple games, it looked like, according to the box score, that they got in some foul trouble. Is that them just getting acclimated to the game against some bigger programs, or is that something that could manifest itself as the season plays out? Yeah, it, it's big guys. You know, a lot of times they reach and they don't move their feet. Uh, you know, they're, they're in contact a lot. And, and as you guys know, in non-conference games in recent years, huge emphasis on freedom of movement. Uh, we've seen a lot of games that are 215, 230 in, in terms of game time. You know, we'd have 60, 70, 80 free throws. That, that's just the way officials have called non-conference games in, in the last two or three years. And, and as you both know, because you watch the Big East, as soon as the conference games start, they just let them play football. <laughs> Isn't that the all, truth, though? <laughs> all the freedom of movement goes out the window. I love it. 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 You've seen some Marquette Seton Hall games, I see, Bill. I mean, you know, and it's just go ahead and kill each other, and that's fine. And we'll, you know, we'll wipe up the blood off the floor, and we'll worry about the rest later. I don't know. Patrick, uh, Ewing, Patrick Ewing takes issue with that comment. The 80s is nowhere near the 2000s. <laughs> well, he, he's not wrong. Um, you know, but compared to – November, December, all of a sudden you get in February and the two teams are shooting 20 free throws combined and there's 80% more contact. And you think, well, what happened here? How did we get here? We have, um, uh, I, I, I definitely think it's just a lot of reaching, a little bit of lack of sharpness, a little bit of lack of positioning, just the nature of being big guys. No, it's funny that you say that. We had Sterling Gibbs uh, on the podcast over the summer, and that was the year that they rolled out the the changes for freedom of movement. It was his first year at Seton Hall, and yep. his first game against Niagara. I think there was a total of seventy five free throws in that game. He went to the line twenty plus on his own, and he was even telling us, "He's like, wow, he's like, if this is the way that we're going to call the game, he's like, I love it. This is great." <laughs> and then they get in the conference play, and it's night and day, just like you described. So that's right. That's right. And, and, and generally, I mean, that's. You know, that's going to happen. You, it's also the nature of, of officiating crews. Some guys call it tight. Some guys don't. Um, you know, you're also you're dealing with some unique dynamics in the bubble. Um, you can hear a lot more of what players say. You can hear a lot more of what coaches say. Uh, you know, and I'm interested to see how, how that affects officials as well. Um, you know, no crowd noise. And if a coach is going to complain about a call, you're going to hear him pretty clearly. If a player is going to complain about a call, you're going to hear him pretty clearly. Uh, you know, if a player talks trash to another player, you're going to hear that pretty clearly. And, and there could be more technical fouls this year. Um, you know, so how the game is called, how it's officiated, its flow, I, I think that's certainly going to be affected by the circumstances. I think we saw that a few times in Bubbleville as well. Well, Bill, let me bring it back to the bright spots since Mike's always focusing on the negatives here. 
Killing there me, ha- Tom. <laughs> Killing me, Tom. <laughs> there have been some bright spots for the Rams outside of just Fat Russell. Uh, you've got Antoine Walker. He had a pair of double-digit games. He went 19-8 and against ASU in the opener, and he went 14-10 and against San Francisco. And also Jeremy Shepard, who scored in double figures three out of the first four games, including a 19-point performance against ASU. Now, out of all the players we've mentioned so far, is there one particular guy that needs to be the X factor in this particular matchup against Seton Hall for URI to be successful? I think the one guy you look for is Shepard. Um, and, and I say that because in recent seasons, this hasn't been a, a very good shooting team from the perimeter. And Shepard is the type of guy who can shoot the three ball a little bit. Um, you know, he, he was four for four in the first game against Arizona State. I, I know he hasn't been as good the three games following that, but he gives them a dimension that they don't necessarily have. Uh, David Cox's first year in, in 2018-19, they were dreadful from three. They were bottom five in the nation from three. It was to the point where we were asking him at media availabilities if there was a moratorium on three-point shooting. <laughs> if, there were, if there were some guys who were under orders, hey, listen, do not shoot it under any circumstances, whether you're open or not. I, I mean, it was really that bad. They were horrendous. Um, you know, so I think Shepard gives them a dimension that they don't have. They've, they've had other guys who can score. They've had other guys who can get to the rim. They've had big guys who can be physical and, and who can score around the rim. Um, you know, they just graduated once, Real Langevin, who was a Jersey guy who played at St. Pat's, who, you know, would have been a, a thousand point scorer in college or close to it. Uh, you know, somebody who was pushing a thousand rebounds in college, physical presence who five feet and in is going to get it done. They've had those guys, but they haven't necessarily had a shooter. And, and so I think Shepard, you know, played his freshman year at East Carolina way back in 2016-17. Uh, he had some issues there um, with a new coach coming in, and, and, you know, he was suspended for the vague violations of team rules, which could be having your shoes untied in the wrong way. The new coach comes in and wants to lay down the law. That's, that's sort of how that works. He always picks one or two guys and makes an example. He ends up in junior college. Last year, academically, he doesn't qualify because there's an issue with his transcript. So he's waited a long time to get out there. And and I think he brings them something that they didn't have before. I I think DJ Johnson is similar in that way. He was a junior college recruit who redshirted last year, a Brooklyn kid who gives you some length on the wing at 6'7", 6'8". He's athletic. He can shoot a little bit. That's really the, the, that's been the real sore spot on this team for the last two years under Cox. And, And I think in that way, Shepard is the guy who's going to play major minutes, who if he can knock down some shots from the perimeter, he, he can give you something. Top of the show, we were talking about team identity and kind of what you took away from the first four games. And you mentioned for Rhode Island to be successful, they got to probably slow the pace down, kind of more along the lines of the BC game, kind of make it more of a gritty, grinded out type game. That is Seton Hall's style as well from what we've seen when they've been most successful. And we're hoping that the size in the front court for Seton Hall is actually going to create some mismatches going forward. There's a lot to be desired in some of that player development on the Seton Hall side. But where do you see this kind of tempo of this game playing itself out? Does it get into the 80s or we see another mid-60s kind of slugfest? In terms of scoring, I'm not sure. Uh, You know, I know so far – we go to our friends at Ken Palm and, and Rhode Island's a top 50 team tempo wise uh, right now through four games. Uh, I know their guards want to get out and run. I know their wing guys want to try to, um, you know, but traditionally when, when they get into the A-10, they might slow down a little bit 
Um, you know, they might decide, they might make some calculated decisions and decide we play defense better than we play offense. So let's try and slow it down a little bit and play half court and be physical because that's what we've been and it's worked for us. You're going to run into Seton Hall and, and you're going to run into, uh, you know, maybe some other power five teams. If, if they're able to change up their schedule a little bit, it seems like everybody's doing it. You know, maybe they can add a game or two here or there, who knows, you know, but you're, you're, you're running into a team of legitimate length size you know, a team that's going to be a tough matchup for you up front, probably the toughest matchup they've had through five games, um, you know, so remains to be seen. I, I think looking at Seton Hall's personnel, not having Bryce Aiken is a big deal in this game, you know, because Bryce Aiken is a guy who profiles as a lead guard, um, you know, someone who can run a team, uh, definitely somebody who would have been able to fend off Russell on the defensive end and Shepard on the defensive end and, and sort of get Seton Hall into good positions, running good possessions, you know, getting good shots consistently. I'm interested to see if Rhode Island maybe takes that absence and, and tries to turn up their pressure a little bit on the perimeter. That, that's something that they normally want to do. They want to be tough. They want to contest threes. They want to make life difficult for you. I wonder if maybe they intensify that a little bit, knowing that Aiken is going to be out for this game and, and maybe up to two weeks. I would highly recommend that approach. That sounds like a good strategy over here. Look, without Aiken, Seton Hall is without a primary ball handler, you know, running the show at point. They have Shavar Reynolds, who's going to backlog, but is more of a two guard. They have a freshman in Jahari Long that saw limited minutes in his first game out. I, I think that would be uh, to the advantage of, of Cox and company to employ that strategy and, and put the put the pressure on the backcourt and maybe force their possessions in the half court to have less time on the clock so that they can't exploit the bigs down low and kind of, you know, work, work the post game. I, I completely agree with you. Now I, I had another question. You talked about Bryce. Now you had a chance to cover Bryce. Cause you mentioned before we got on the air that you've done some Brown basketball throughout the years uh, based yep. on your, your geography. Yep. There's been some people who kind of, you know, are very excited about Bryce's game. And there's other people that maybe throw some shade and say, Hey, I don't know if his game at the Ivy league could potentially transfer against power five basketball on a night in and night out basis from what you've seen from Bryce firsthand, you know, kind of dispel the rumors or give us your take as to what Seton hall fans should expect from Bryce, assuming he's healthy. Well, it's always a real question. You, you wonder how a guy gonna, is going to translate. You wonder how he's going to fit from a system perspective. Uh, you wonder if, if physically he's going to be up to it because it is a different level. There, there's no question. Seton hall is playing better teams, more physical teams, uh, higher pedigreed recruits than, than Harvard would. Uh, you know, the Crimson played some good non-conference games while Aiken was there. Um, you know, they were an NCAA tournament type team while he was there. Um, you know, but not night in and night out. You, you weren't going to see opponents like Seton Hall would in the non-conference, especially the Big East. I think you, you might need to put a little trust in Kevin Willard in that way. He's bringing the player in. He's evaluated him as a player who can play at Seton Hall. Um, and Kevin Willard's done a pretty darn good job uh, as the head coach of the Pirates. And, and so I think in that way, he might get the benefit of the doubt a little bit. Uh, I look at Aiken, and, and really the only question I've ever had about him is his health, uh, because he has struggled with it. Uh, physically, I think he can play for just about anyone. Um, you know, realistically, you're, you're looking at a guy who's not overly big. He's six feet, um, you know, and, and that might be generous even, but he's athletic. He can shoot it a little. He's a smart kid. He can run a team. Um, you know, he's a type of guy who can get it to the bigs up front, who can find Jared Roden in good spots when he's, you know, looking in the corner for three, 
Um, you know, he's going to hit him in the pocket for a catch and shoot. Uh, you know, you can make life easier for Miles Kale. Um, you know, that's that's the type of guy who you want. I, I look at Providence through one game, granted, but you know, blowing out Fairfield, who's not much of an opponent. But you look at someone like Jared Bynum, who came in from St. Joe's, uh, you know, similar conference, Ivy to the A-10. Jared Bynum, his first game with Providence, has eight assists and no turnovers in 24 minutes. And, you know, a pass-first point guard, a guy who can run a team who's similar physically to Bryce Aiken, and someone who's smart enough to realize, I have other guys on this team who can put the ball in the basket. So why don't I just pull back a little bit on my own game, try to fit in, Try to make everybody else happy uh, because ultimately we're going to win a lot more games that way. I have talented teammates. It's probably more talent than I've played with previously. And that's no disrespect to guys like Seth Towns and, and Chris Lewis at Harvard. They could have played for anybody, um, you know, but at Seton Hall, it's a different level. And, and so I think ultimately if they can keep Bryce Aiken healthy, I think he's a good fit for that team. I remember at the time when he committed thinking that that was a good pickup for Seton Hall, he's a good transition from someone like Powell who had the ball in his hand so often, um, you know, he can carry you forward until your next point guard of the future who could start for two or three years is there. And he certainly has pieces to work with. When you look at Sandra Mamakalashvili, when you look at Jared Roden, when you look at Miles Kale, those are good guys to give the ball to. Bill, you, you said it right, Bill. You said Mama <laughs> Kelly's really correct. I'm sorry. There are people that cover Seton Hall 24-7. They can't say his name. That's impressive. I got to give you kudos. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Bill, we're going to put you on the spot. We're going to see if you've got the nerve to upset the hometown fans. We want a prediction. Who wins this game? Uh, with Aiken, I, I would have said Seton Hall would be favored in this game. I, I actually would have had them winning this game because I think you look up front and you look at Mamu and, and you look at Iko Biagu, those two guys are, are really, really tough to deal with. Uh, you know, Jared Roden is an elite shooter. I think he's someone who could have a breakout year this year. Um, you know, someone who's going to have more of a role in the offense. Uh, Miles Kale is a veteran guy, you know, 6'6". He's a tough matchup on the wing. Uh, has played in a lot of big games as a senior. Um, you know, I think Seton Hall would have had enough answers physically. Um, you know, but I'm not necessarily convinced that they have someone right now who can run their team in a road game against a team that's pretty aggressive on the perimeter defensively, a team that's played two good games in a row uh, against South Florida and against San Francisco. They have a little confidence now coming out of the bubble, you know, and have defended at a high level the last two games. They, they haven't been shootouts. They've been games where, you know, Rhode Island has held South Florida 68 points, San Francisco to 71 points and they were 11 for 40 from three. Um, you know, this is a team that made 13 threes in upsetting Virginia. So obviously a team that's good on the perimeter and Rhode Island made them look pretty ordinary. So I, I think without Aiken, you have to give the advantage to the Rams. I would not be surprised if, if Seton Hall's bigs are able to find a way to make a difference in this game. But I, I think that missing your lead guard on the road, even with no fans, I, I think that makes a huge difference this early in the season when not everyone is necessarily comfortable or in rhythm. Damn it, Tommy. Bill's got me worried, man. He's got me. I mean, it, it, just, it sounded logical. It, it sounded, you know, realistic. Uh, we, we've been saying the same thing. This, this team has got a lot of question marks. The biggest one coming in was the health of Bryce Aiken and how he was going to integrate. And now that we're not going to have him for potentially up to two weeks, I think every matchup they have in this non-conference as they're trying to kind of find themselves is, is a big question mark. So I could see this being a toss-up game myself. 
it, it's just not a great spot for Seton Hall. If, if it was later in the year, if they were playing this game in February and Aiken was healthy and everyone else sort of had their role in the post-Miles Powell world, um, you know, I think they'd be a lot more comfortable. I think you'd see those physical measurables show up a lot more. Uh, I, I just think looking from the outside, and you guys watch Seton Hall a lot more than I do, I, I see them when they play Providence uh, because I cover the Friars a little bit watch a fair amount of Big East games. It's just so difficult to replace someone like Miles Powell, who is such a star, someone who everyone's going to look at and think, well, Miles is going to do it. If we're in a tough spot, if we're late in the second half, if we really need a bucket, it's, well, Miles is going to do it. Now that he's gone, everyone's going to look at each other and say, okay, who is it? Is it going to be you? Is it going to be me? You're going to see some games coming out of the blocks where, Guys are going to defer to each other when they shouldn't. You, you might see somebody try to be the man when he really shouldn't be. Um, you know, so that's a difficult balance. And, and I think that's something that they will find as they get into January and February because they have talent. But it's not necessarily something that they're going to have as we sit here in early December. I also think they're going to be missing as much as they miss Powell offensively. They're going to be missing a guy like Quincy McKnight to kind of lock up a guy like Fats Russell. I mean, you let Miles do his thing on one side of the court and then Q would consistently take the other team's best guy on the ball and try to you know shut him down. He did it against uh, Maryland and McCown. He did it against uh, Howard at Marquette. He, he did it numerous times over and over again to let Powell just do his thing on the offensive side and be the lockdown player on the other side of the court they, they don't have that and we're not sure if Obiago is going to be that rim protector that Romaro Gill was it's not just Miles Powell a lot of different guys have to find their footing so I, I'm with you a lot of uncertainty in an early season but as we keep saying isn't that the MO of 2020 really is uh, and you make a good point about McKnight a, a guy who transfers up from a lower level there, there's not necessarily that ego there that pedigree there that might be there with a four-star recruit a, a top hundred guy He's going to be willing to be more of a glue guy and, and play a role coming in. And I think when you're recruiting like Kevin Willard is and, and you're bringing in talent, um, the second part of that equation is to get that talent to work together and, and to sort of get some guys to understand that they're not going to score 30 points a night and, and they're not going to be able to take 15, 20 shots a night. They need to fit as pieces of the puzzle if the hole is going to be that good. Um, you know, the, the best thing he has going for him, though, obviously, is that Seton Hall has won at a high level, has been really successful in recent years. Um, you know, and you can weather the loss of someone like Powell, great as he was, because the program right now is in a really strong place. Well, Bill, we can't thank you enough for staying up late with us and talking a little bit about URI. We wish you nothing but the best going forward, and we wish the Rams success after they lose to the Hall this coming Wednesday night. Guys, it was my pleasure. I'll come back anytime you like. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, stay healthy, stay safe, and, and best to you and to your family. Bill uh, same to you, Bill. Bill Koch, everybody. Okay, Mike, you heard from Bill. He thinks URI takes it this time. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I didn't want to burst his bubble and go the opposite way. I mean, he was making some good points, so I kind of went a little back and forth with him. But the reality is, you know what? I, I don't think our guards are going to struggle to that extent. Y yes, without Bryce Aiken, lots of question marks. We saw some lack of dribble penetration in the Louisville game. Could that manifest itself again, rear its ugly head? Sure, but – you saw some positive things out of Molson getting into the lane. You saw Shavar acquit himself well and not turn the ball over. 
as long as Seton Hall can get the ball into the post and you can have Roden and Kale shoot better from distance and not go, well, what, what would they shoot, like 20-something percent in that game? I mean, give me something closer to 30 to 35% and really exploit Sandro in the post. They don't have an answer for him at 6'11". They don't have an answer for Ike at 7 foot plus. We should be crashing the glass, imposing our will in the front court, and that should carry the game. So, yes, it's, it's a road environment. It's probably going to be closer than we want it to be. We're going to have probably some frustrating turnovers with their guard pressure. But ultimately, I think the size is going to win out, and Seton Hall probably walks out with, let's say, a you know a five- or six-point victory. Okay, I think it's going to be more dependent on which Fats Russell shows up. You know, it seems like when he struggles, the team struggles. But Fats sounds like he's one of those guys that's like that likes to attack the rim. And I think we're going to get uh, caught up in that. I don't know if our guards can stay in front of him. And I, I think that's going to be the difference there. So we'll, I, I don't know if I've got a prediction. If I'm going to make a prediction, I'll say Seton Hall close. But I think Fats Russell is going to be the determinant there. So, But you heard Bill say that this team is not a sharpshooting team. So if you're concerned about Fats Russell, you know, dictating the play, drawing the defense, why don't we kind of mix it up and play it a little more matchup hybrid zone, kind of force them out on the perimeter? Or do you think a guy like Shavar is going to get that defensive assignment and keep him out of the paint consistently? I don't think they're going to be completely reliant on just the performance of Fats. I think they can dictate that matchup. No, no, I don't think you're, I think you're taking me, I don't think Fats is going to be the end-all be-all, but he's he's the engine that drives that train, man. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Okay, so if they cut off the head of the snake, shouldn't they then beat this team rather easily? Oh, if, the bad fat, if, fat, if Fats Russell either gets, uh, if it's the bad Fats Russell or he gets stopped in some way, I don't think Rhode Island can stay with us. Okay, that, now, now we agree. Tommy and I agreeing, not a good sign. I already said that we were going to, I see a, a close win in our future, but we'll see what happens. But Mike, no matter what the results, we're going to say the same thing. We're going to say go Pirates. Go Big Blue. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of your favorite listening platforms. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle at Pirates. We are also proud members of the What You Expect Network of Podcasts. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 